Welcome back to Laws of the Game, a sports law podcast. I'm Kate Porter. I'm joined here by my co-host, Andrew Wisnowski. Hey, Kate. What's going on? We're here in part two of how the soccer world works. If you listen into part one, we talked about the basic organizational structure of soccer globally. And so we talked about the pyramid system, which is FIFA, with the confederations underneath it, the national associations, and then we touched on very briefly the clubs. Our goal for today is we're going to talk about club soccer. So we talked about international and national team soccer, and we're going to talk about now how club soccer works. So jumping right in today, the in addition to playing for their national teams, most professional soccer players that you're that you may know of, they also play for a club or professional team. If you're comparing this to basketball, it's like Paul Gasol. He plays in the NBA for a number of years. He played on the Grizzlies, the Lakers and other teams, but he also represented Spain in the Olympic Games. So his national team was Spain, his club team was the NBA club he was playing for, the Lakers, the Grizzlies, whatever. Each of the professional and amateur clubs, they'll play in a league, which is, again, in the United States. You're looking at LA Galaxy as a professional soccer club, NYCFC, Inter-Miami. The three clubs that all play in the MLS, Major League Soccer, which is the league. And again, if we're going to compare this to the NBA, it's like how the Lakers and Knicks and the Heat, are they're all professional basketball teams and they play in the NBA. Most countries around the world have their own professional leagues. Many of them have multiple divisions. So you'll have a Division One, which is your top tier division, and then Division Two, Division Three. And this is kind of where things get a little complicated when we're talking about how the game is organized in the United States versus how it's organized in other parts of the world. So England, let's take England for an example. It has a very complicated league structure. There's over 140 different leagues in England, ranging from amateur to professional. And there's more than 480 different divisions. And so at the end of each season, the top teams in each league will move up to the next division. It's called promotion. And then the last place team in the division will move down to the lower division called relegation. So you, you often hear it, promotion relegation or pro-rel is how Americans like to abbreviate it. We're going to do a whole episode later on in the series about promotion to relegation, some of the interesting issues around promotion to relegation and the fight to introduce promotion to relegation in the United States. Currently, it doesn't exist. Can't wait. But the interesting thing about promotion and relegation is that, in theory, the very worst team in the very bottom tier of English football could, after many, many seasons, rise up the ranks and eventually play in the Premier League, which is the first division of English soccer. They're the top division. And it would do so by finishing the top of its division each year, or the top three, depending on the promotion rules and winning playoff matches, and rising up through the ranks. Right. So just to touch on the differences between the United States system and the European system, I think one big piece of this is that through all of these European federations and leagues, they're all sort of centrally linked and centrally governed by the FA and downstream to to local divisional FAs. But it's much more centralized and much more one big part up and down the entire league system. But in the United States, it's a lot more fractured and a lot more disassociated. And that comes from the way that soccer was developed in this country. It comes from the way that it's organized, where there, the United States is a massive country. It has a massive population. And soccer really started after the World Wars as sort of a youth sports movement. And so these youth sports organizations, these local organizations started to come in 
And the U.S. Soccer Federation began to govern those organizations separately, essentially. So they're all a lot of the ideas of U.S. soccer is that they have all of these members, but they all these members are more or less equal. There's none that stand above or below, save for maybe the amount of votes they have on their councils, like the professional council or the soccer council. But in the end of the day, U.S. soccer takes a hands-off approach. It sort of lets each one of their members organize themselves. So that's sort of the foundational establishment of how these organization members of U.S. soccer operate. And that leads to what we have as a closed league system where the same teams in the same league continue to compete in those leagues every year. This is also in part similar to how our professional sports work in the U.S. Football, basketball, baseball, hockey, there's no movement up or down by teams throughout the divisions. More so, the different divisions are used to develop players and move players up and down the pyramid. There's also just another thing to note is just that there is movement between clubs in divisions in U.S. soccer. Lots of teams from lower divisions have been brought into MLS. Lots of teams, professional teams from different divisions have moved around between leagues. So it's not that these teams don't move around so much as it's that these teams don't move around based off of competition. It's more similar to like getting a new job than to getting a promotion, if that's a good analogy. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. The other thing about the club system in the U.S. versus the rest of the world, and this is changing somewhat, but, you know, if you look at a club in England, for example, it will have teams. Manchester United has teams at all different levels. So it has teams starting from, I think, U7, so seven-year-olds and under, all the way up through U21s is their last youth team. And then the first team, which is their first, their top tier professional team, it's who you see on TV. And so all of these clubs have this long history of not just being a single team, but it's a club that has multiple teams. In the U.S., the system is slightly different. You play for a team and your club may have a couple different teams, but chances are they don't have a professional team. Your youth club does not have a professional team unless you're playing MLS Next Pro or in an MLS Academy and that's mostly a recent invention within the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years when the MLS Academy. I would say like last five, they really started getting cooking on that. Exactly. So it's just the way that sports developed and Andrew was talking about kind of a like fractured system of how everything was developed independently. Maybe not fractured is the right word, but everything is developed independently. You don't see that in other parts of the world where the clubs are integrated to every single level and there's one national league for each age group. And, and maybe there's regional leagues, but you know, for the most part, there's a lot more cohesion than the United States. So if we move away from U.S. soccer for a moment, and we'll focus on soccer in Europe, and I promise we will come back in later episodes in the series to talk about the various unique aspects of U.S. soccer. But if you're talking about the rest of the world, while the top teams in each division get promoted, what happens for the top teams in the first division, for example? Let's say the winner of the Premier League, what happens to them? And so typically in Europe, the top teams will qualify for a separate competition organized by the Confederation. So again, the regional association or the regional association of soccer, the regional governing body. In England, for example, so the top four teams in the Premier League, so if you finish in one of the top four spots, first, second, third, or fourth, 
you'll qualify for the UEFA Champions League, which is the UEFA, the regional governing body of Europe, that's its top tier competition. The Champions League is a season-long tournament. So the name league, I think, is kind of a misnomer because it's not really a league. It's a tournament. But it starts play in July or August with qualifiers and goes all the way till May, usually after the last Premier League game is, has been played for the season. So it really lasts the entire year. And each country receives a certain number of qualifying spots based on how strong the, the domestic league in that country is. So England, Spain, Germany, and Italy each will receive four qualifying spots. Um, so the top four teams automatically quali- or will qualify for the Champions League. Um, other countries will receive fewer qualifying spots because their leagues are viewed to be not quite as strong as the big four leagues. The Champions League is extremely popular. It's typically watched, the final is typically watched by between 380 and 400 million viewers globally. So this is approximately twice the number of viewers that watch the Super Bowl for just one match. And again, it's a season-long tournament. In Europe, there's also other club competitions worth mentioning. So clubs that don't qualify for the Champions League may still qualify for other European competitions or other UEFA tournaments. So the Europa League is the fifth place team will qualify for the Europa League, which is a UEFA's second tier competition. And then there's a new competition called the Europa Conference League, which is another team from the Premier League will qualify for that. These, again, are season-long tournaments organized similar to the Champions League, but they're just viewed to be less prestigious than the Champions League. Yeah. And when I first started hearing about these like parallel competitions like the FA Cup and the Champions League, I always tried to create in my mind what the American version of it is because it helped me to understand it better because you're hearing like they qualify for the Champions League and then that competition starts in June. So basically, the way that I look at it is similar to how the NCAA works with the college football playoff and the NCAA basketball tournament, where you have all these different leagues, right? Similar to conferences in in the NCAA. And then the top teams from those leagues, like the conferences, move on to this big national, or in this case, continental tournament. The only difference is instead of it being played in the postseason, it gets played simultaneously with the next season. So it's sort of like the playoffs. To me, it's sort of like the playoffs of the previous season. That's sort of an easier way if you are new to global soccer and you are American, like I was at one point, to like kind of understand how it works and like what the purpose of it is and where it falls into everything. So in North America, we have a similar competition. It's called the CONCACAF Champions League. The top teams in all of the leagues in the region play in the tournament. There are other international competitions that are sort of transnational. There's the CONCACAF League, which is sort of like a, it's not like Europa League. It's more of a feeder into CONCACAF Champions League. And that's for the smaller Central American and Caribbean nations to get their feeding slots into the main part of the champion CCL competition. And then there's two other international tournaments that are recognized by CONCACAF that are organized by a joint partnership between the Mexican Liga Amequis and Major League Soccer, which are the League's Cup and Campeones Cup. Campeones Cup at the moment is just the two winners of the Mexican Liga Amequis competition and the winners of MLS Cup. It's a one-off game the trophy's interesting looking and it's basically it's like i don't want to say it's a glorified friendly because there's a real trophy and it's sanctioned by both both te- both leagues but it's just one game essentially on the other side of that there's um league's cup which is 
more of a direct competition between all of the teams in MLS and all of the teams in Liga MX. It's sort of like a it's sort of like an FA Cup if the FA Cup was between all the teams in England and all the teams in Spain. There's a group stage. Basically what the setup is now is that both leagues will stop play in the middle of the summer and do this tournament over the span of, I think, a month, maybe more. And so there will be a group stage, and then it will go into single elimination, and then there will be a championship. The idea being is that CCL, the CONCACAF Champions League, its timing doesn't work well for MLS clubs because most of the competition happens early in the season. For MLS, so many clubs that qualify for CCL, their first competitive matches of the year will be CCL matches against significant competition. And so what MLS wanted to do is get more teams involved in playing against Mexican teams and also get them playing at a point in time in the season where they're closer to their peak performance ability. And to show more matchups and allow for more competition between the two leagues, because Liga MX is probably the most popular soccer league in North America. And for Liga MX, the benefit is they get to come into the U.S. market. They get to play in front of their fans in the U.S. and sort of continue to build on the goodwill there. So there's a lot of overlapping interests there. And for MLS and Liga MX, they both have strategic goals to grow in the region and to improve. And they both believe that the competitions and playing each other will help that grow. So it's more of a strategic and business-minded approach, but it also leads to a more dynamic competition and a more more interesting matchups than, say, CCL, where only four MLS teams and four Liga MX teams wind up playing each other each year. And the turnover is very high because of how much competitive balance there is in MLS. In addition to these like international tournaments, these regional international tournaments that we have, we also have our own cup competition. We talked about this a little bit in the previous episode about U.S. soccer's obligations for governing soccer. Every league, every national association has this sort of cup competition, and it's basically a single or not single elimination, but an elimination tournament amongst all of the teams throughout the pyramid. It's extremely unique to soccer. And in the U.S., it's probably the only opportunity that like a potential amateur recreational side will have to be able to compete with some of the top professional teams in the league and also the only opportunity for lower division teams to compete against higher division teams. So Mm -hmm. a really good example is that this year, the U.S. Open Cup final was between Orlando and MLS team and uh, Sacramento Republic, which is a second division USL side. And that is incredible exposure for this USL side to A, have beaten, I believe, two MLS teams to get there and B, to be in this final and to show that they and their players are stacking up how they stack up against these top tier professional teams. Yeah. And these domestic cups we talk about, this is not a unique to the United States concept. Every European league, for example, has its own domestic cup. Um, So in England, it's called the FA Cup. Uh, In Spain, it's the Copa del Rey. And every country has its own domestic cup. 
where, again, like the U.S. Open Cup, the lower division teams have the opportunity to compete and potentially play against first and second division teams. So it's really interesting to watch that. And again, this competition is going on at the same time that the league is going on, at the same time that the Champions League is going on. And so as a soccer fan or a football fan, depending on which term you use, it can get confusing. You know your team is playing on a Tuesday, but what competition are they playing in? And if you don't know what competition they're playing in, where do you watch the game? Because the, the TV rights for the Champions League is different than who has the TV rights for the Premier League, which is different than who has the TV rights for the FA Cup. So it can get extremely confusing. It, it, as a avid soccer fan, a European soccer fan, it can get a bit expensive. You have to have you know, at least three streaming services in order to really watch your team and follow your team. But it's an interesting dynamic where you have the same team that can be playing in three different competitions every two or three days. So it's an interesting one. And then the other point I wanted to raise goes back to the, the point you're talking about MLS teams playing and wanting to play in midseason form. So that's why they play the tournament over the summer. The MLS is unique in comparison to some of the other leagues around the world because it plays its season from March till October, if I'm not mistaken, October, November. Yeah, November this year, but it changes with the World Cup and yeah. everything like that. Exactly. So, I mean, the crux of the MLS season is played over the North American summer, whereas mo many other leagues, particularly in Europe, all the European leagues will play from starting in August, usually late August until May. And it changes a little bit depending on World Cup schedule. I think the World Cup being in the winter, or at least the Northern Hemisphere winter this year, is kind of thrown off league scheduling a little bit. But typically the clubs will play basically a U.S. school year type system. Like you start in August, you end in May. And some leagues will take breaks over the winter for a few weeks when the weather is at its worst and around the holidays. But it's very different, which is why a many European clubs do like having their tours in North America, because when they come, if they decide to play against a match against an MLS team, which happens, they'll play friendly matches, so scrimmages if you were in another sport, they play against a team that's in midseason form. And so there's a real benefit for European clubs who are still in preseason training getting to play against competition that's regularly playing competitive matches and is in midseason form. So we do see that as a kind of a benefit and attraction for the European clubs to come over to the U.S. You were talking about the schedule, right? So most European countries do the August to May schedule. A lot of Nordic countries don't. But I think one of the things that people don't realize is that most, if not all, of the South American Federation's competition calendars have moved over to a January to December calendar. So they are also following like the annual year calendar. Mm -hmm. Uruguay switched over. Argentina switched over a long time ago. Brazil, they're always playing soccer matches because all their teams are in 100 different competitions and they have a bunch of different leagues. And even in Mexico and South America, because they have these split seasons where they will basically play like a half season is considered the full season and then they, they basically do that twice instead you can it sort of can be looked at through the lens of an annual calendar so when people say that the united states is not on like a quote-unquote normal soccer calendar it's not that they don't follow a soccer calendar that many soccer countries in the world don't follow it's that they don't follow the calendar that the major european soccer countries follow and then the only other final part about 
when we talk about league competitions and the uniqueness of U.S. sport is the one thing that MLS does that receives significant ire when it's proposed in other countries is their all-star game. If you're an American listener, the all-star game is a very normal thing in North America. It's a very fun thing. You get to watch a bunch of really good players play on a team together that they might not normally do. And you sort of get that in Europe with national team competitions. And maybe that's why there's not a lot of joy in the suggestion that there be a all-star game for the Premier League, like what happened over the summer. But it is a major part of the North American soccer professional sports calendar. So it's worth bearing to mention. And usually for MLS, it's either the MLS plays itself. Recently, they've been playing an all-star team for Liga Mekis. And then sometimes they will play a big European team on an international summer tour. They've played United. They've played Tottenham. They've played West Ham one year, I think. West Ham, Atletico Madrid. I think they did Real Madrid, Juve. They've done a bunch. I think at one point the All-Stars went to the Bernabeu and played Madrid in Santiago Bernabeu. Crazy. Which is Real Madrid Stadium in, in Madrid. Yes. So I think like it's not necessarily part of the club competition, but it's definitely part of like the professional club soccer calendar in the United States. Yeah. And you're right. I did misspeak when I said European clubs all play the August to March. Sweden, I just looked up, for example, play almost the same schedule as the MLS. They play late March, early April until November. So it's the large soccer leagues and the most prominent soccer leagues. The big five leagues, the big seven. Yeah, yeah. And I think you'll see soccer on a global level is extremely Euro Eurocentric. The European UEFA and the European national associations are very have a lot of sway within FIFA. And I think there's a lot of views that the rest of the world should kind of conform to the, how the European sports model. And so there's tension between that, which is, I think, also one of the reasons why there's always a bit of a pushback on the all-star game is I think Europeans view it as gimmicky. I mean, yeah, but like you got to embrace the gimmick. The gimmick is a feature, not a bug. <laughs> exactly. But they have the similar, I think, perspectives on cheerleaders and stadiums and things like that. Mascots. Mascots, I think they've, they've embraced somewhat, but... The idea that U.S. American sports are pure, are an entertainment product. You go to a match from the moment you step foot in the stadium grounds till you leave. Their efforts designed to commercialize the experience and to optimize the experience. You go to a European match. I mean, you go into the stadium, you go to your seat, you sit down, you watch the entire match. You'll get up at halftime to go get something to eat really quickly. Go straight back. There's no real halftime shows. There's no efforts designed to distract your attentions away from the actual matches being held on the pitch. There's no like going for a walk around the concourse to see what the food items are like. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And the food attractions are not quite like what they are in the U.S. stadiums. No, they're getting better, but like it's still. Yeah. I mean, you don't have a Shake Shack like you do at City Field. and Not yet. Soon, probably. All right. That brings us to the end of our part two of how the soccer world works. Again, today we talked about club soccer. Going forward, we have a number of really interesting topics that we plan to discuss and address on this podcast. Our next episode will be the Road to the World Cup, where we'll talk about the World Cup as a competition, the history of the tournament, who organizes it, the bidding process to bid for and then host the World Cup, qualification and qualification disputes. And then future episodes, we plan to tackle international eligibility, so how players can play for certain national teams, how they can switch their eligibility to play for national teams, which happens, 
from time to time, you know, player who's has dual citizenship, for example, and how he may play for one country as a youth player, but then switch and play for another country as a first team or full national team, a representative team player. We'll talk about the sale of players, so the transfer of players between one club to another, both domestically in the United States and then international transfer of players. We'll talk about the organization of the MLS, which is organized in a fairly unique way, particularly in comparison to other soccer leagues around the world and also to other U.S. professional sports leagues. I think the MLS kind of finds itself in a weird hybrid position where it's not quite one or the other. It's a little bit of both. We'll talk about MLS roster rules and the MLS salary cap and all kind of intricacies and complex system that, that the MLS has come up with. The great promotion and relegation debate. The Can't um, wait. <laughs> Can't wait. Talking about closed league systems like you have in the United States versus more traditional soccer leagues that have promotion and relegation. We'll be talking about financial fair play, the super league and new league formats for soccer leagues, anti-doping in soccer, options to extend contracts, dispute resolution. There's a lot of really interesting topics we have planned for this series, and we hope that you will tune back in and listen to future episodes. It's going to be great. You have AV's promise. Yes. Thanks so much. The Velawood podcasts are recorded with the help of Radio MD, based in Chicago, Illinois. You can find all of our podcasts on our website at velawoodlaw.com slash podcasts. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at velawoodlaw.com.